Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. I'm getting increasingly comfortable with that name each time I say it. I think maybe doing this more regularly has made me uh, just embrace the hidden meaning behind it. I know on, on first glance, it seems like a very slothful and uninvented, uninventive uh, title for a podcast, but I think that you're going to see the various layers of meetings start to unfold, kind of peel off like an onion as we continue to delve into this podcast each week. So I'm starting to see some of those various levels of meaning, and I hope one day uh, you can share uh, the appreciation with me. So I have a few things I wanted to talk about, and I also want to, as always, save time for people in the queue, as most of you probably know by now, the format for Colin is the interactivity um, is, is what the functionality is built around. So if you're somebody who has a question for me or a comment or uh, a desire to interact about any of the topics I'm about to cover or some unrelated topic as well, all you have to do is click the raised hand icon at the bottom of your screen. You'll be put into the queue in the order in which you raise your hand, and I will then, uh, once I'm done speaking, covering the several topics I want to cover, I take your questions, talk to you one by one in the order in which you appear. So it's first come, first serve. So the first topic I want to talk about is the uh, reaction on the part of the political and media class that emerged in the wake of this obviously horrific, racially motivated killing in Buffalo by an 18-year-old white uh, student who has fed on a bunch of extremist racist doctrine and dogma on the internet and using what he believes he developed as a worldview, went and purposely targeted a, a largely black section of Buffalo scoped out particular locations that were soft targets, ones where there were primarily black people either working there or who were customers. He chose a supermarket, walked in, indiscriminately began shooting, killed 10 people, most of whom were black, and left a 180-page densely written manifesto as well as other kind of trails and clues about what was motivating him over the course of the last several months. And then on top of that, as days went by, we began learning more about the person who did the shooting spree. As typically happens, he clearly seems to be somebody who, beyond this kind of internet radicalization, has some degree of mental instability. He had kind of a classic case of late adolescent uh, uh, kind of unhinged violence, threatening classmates. Um, He was clearly somebody who those around him viewed as disturbing. He was actually on the radar of local and I believe even state and federal authorities. And oftentimes, whenever we learn about that, people get angry and start to blame law enforcement. But just because law enforcement uh, has reason to watch somebody or to be suspicious of them doesn't necessarily mean they have just cause to arrest them and detain them. The fact that somebody seems dangerous is not thankfully, in our society grounds for arresting them, you have to actually commit a crime. Whether, though, they should have been engaged in more surveillance and the like seems typically to be the kind of 2020 hindsight that 
people like to engage in in these sorts of cases. And for understandable reasons, there are 10 people who are completely innocent and needlessly have their lives snuffed out in the most tragic possible way. So, of course, people look for ways that that might have been avoidable. So this we've seen many, many times in all different sorts of uh, kind of tragedies. It even happens in car accidents or um, industrial accidents, work accidents. People look for culprits and to see what could have been done to avoid it. But in this particular case, what was so striking, and even though I wrote a fairly long article about it, I think 4,000 words or so on Substack, the day after it happened, I also uh, have made several media appearances in order to discuss the reaction to it, um, including going on Tucker Carlson's show on Monday night, which was the first show that he um, did after the massacre in Buffalo on Saturday, which strikes me so much. And still to this very moment, I find somewhat astounding and disturbing is what was the incredibly rapid and also coordinated effort to put more guilt, not as much guilt, but more guilt on Tucker Carlson than even this 18-year-old who actually pulled the trigger. And what was really ghoulish about it and really disturbing about it from a kind of ethical, moral, and even journalistic perspective is that as somebody who immediately got my hands on this manifesto, which was obviously the only thing anyone knew about this person and therefore the only thing they could possibly have used in order to discern his motives and assign blame not only to him but other people, was this manifesto that that I quickly got my hands on. And it took me a couple of hours to read through because it was 181 pages. It was very densely written. It was single-spaced. He had obviously written it over the course of many months. And in some instances, it was poorly written. In other instances, it was actually quite well-written. Um, but it was very internally contradictory. It was difficult to discern a familiar ideological identity to it. There were all different kinds of uh, sources for these ideas, some that came from books, some that came from uh, recognizable places on the internet, some that just came from kind of conflicting memes that people of his generation use on the internet. There was really no discernible, immediate uh, psychological or political picture that you could easily uh, go grasp um, within just say a matter of minutes. Obviously, there were some overriding themes, including highly racist views about calls white nations and European nations, which to him are synonymous, to remain all white, the need to cleanse those societies, not only of immigrants, but very importantly of citizens who are non-white as well. So unlike a lot of people who debate immigration, what types of limits we should have on immigration, which almost everybody believes to some extent we should. Almost nobody says they believe in open borders. Um, not even the most left-wing politician you could find, like Bernie Sanders, will say he believes in open borders. Everybody believes in some limits on the border. People debate how much limits there should be, uh, how many immigrants should be let in, what types of methodology ought to be used there, of course, is that kind of debate. But he wasn't really interested in that debate at all. Because he was somebody who believes that 
the notion of a non-white citizen in a white nation is in and of itself an oxymoron, that there's no such thing as a non-white citizen in the United States or in Western Europe or in Australia or New Zealand, that everybody who is non-white by definition is an invader. And the only two things you can do with such a person is either forcibly deport them or murder them. And it's very notable that he, in fact, did not target immigrants at all. Um, He deliberately targeted citizens. And there was an entire section in his manifesto explaining why he didn't target immigrants, but chose to target citizens instead. And that was what I just said. But there were all kinds of more complex and nuanced and in some cases sort of illogical and internally inconsistent views about the world that clearly motivated him. He, at various points, uh, described how, until quite recently, he was clearly on the left. He, from 12 to 15, was a communist. He said he began at the age of 15 to move a little bit more to the right. But at certain points, he still said, when asked, he sort of did a question and answer uh, with himself, what is your ideology? How would you describe your ideology? His answer was, I regard myself as um, a, a, an authoritarian more on the left, a left-wing authoritarian. He said, but I prefer the word populist. And there were clearly ideas that he believes in very strongly that are typically more associated with the left, including a deep, almost mystical belief in the necessity of preserving the environment. Environmentalism is an extremely important cause for him. Um, He also had an entire section about why he despises uh, political conservatism, kind of conventional uh, political conservatism. He said that it really isn't conserving anything other than low taxes and high corporate profits. He actually ranted in in numerous uh, sections about income inequality in ways that you might hear from people associated with the Bernie Sanders movement, about the wealth of the 1% at the expense of everybody else. He believed that that was really all conservatism was about. He had kind of a contempt for that. He believes mainstream conservatism does not address the principal problem that he views above all else is the one that matters and the one that motivated him to go and and is the what he believes is is white genocide by which he means the fact that most white people in white countries are not having enough children even to maintain uh current population rates that in order to maintain current population rates the fertility rates for white people need to be two children for every woman And according to him, there's only one white country in the world where that's being met and just barely. And that's Argentina and and everywhere else. The inbred, inborn white population in Western Europe and the United States is decreasing. People are having children far later in life. They're having far fewer children. And that's the reason why. experiencing population growth. And how is that happening? Well, because they're um, allowing so many immigrants to come in, in particular non-white immigrants. 
And he believes that if you look at the fertility rates of non-white immigrants compared to the fertility rates, rates of uh, white uh, citizens of these countries, it's only a matter of time and not very long between first white people become the minority in these traditionally white countries and then ultimately disappear altogether genetically through racial inbreeding, um, racial mixing, and just the fact that non-whites will eventually become so large a number that white culture and white people will barely exist any longer. And his view was, I need to go and kill um, whatever non-white people I can find, including citizens, in order to inspire others to go murder other non-white people to reduce their population, to basically incite a racial civil war, or to scare them so much that they basically self-deport, that they no longer feel safe in their country, and then they leave. This was to the extent he had a an explanation that was at all cogent about why his actions served or advanced his political vision. It's not anything new that we haven't seen before. In fact, he himself listed a large number, a long list of people that he said were inspirations to him, whose footsteps he believed he was following in. And almost everyone, if not every one of the people he named, none of them was were members of Congress. None of them were uh, elected officials in the Republican Party. Show like Fox News or writers at uh, mainstream right-wing outlets. If you didn't read the manifesto but only heard media accounts of the manifesto, you would probably believe that his on his list of people who influenced him right at the top was Tucker Carlson, followed by people like, I don't know, Matt Gates and Donald Trump. Um, but none of that was true. None of those kinds of people were even remotely alluded to, except in the section where he described why he hated mainstream conservatism. Instead, they were people like Dylan Roof, the person who went into uh, the black church in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered, I believe it was nine people. Um, Anders Breivik, who committed mass murder in Norway in the name of the same uh, doctrine. Um, Others who, the the killer who went into El Paso and shot non-white people. But his primary inspiration, the person he admired most, the person who he said really kind of changed his political trajectory was uh, Brenton Tarrant, who at the time was 28 years old. He was a white citizen of Australia from a working class background. And in 2019, he targeted two mosques um, in New Zealand in uh, injuring 40 others by just indiscriminately shooting as many people as he could find, as many Muslims as he could find. He live-streamed it. Buffalo watched the live stream, uh, was inspired by it. He also live-streamed his own killing. And a big part of his manifesto was outright plagiarism of the uh, shooter in, in New Zealand. where he learned of this from. He listed the websites that he got this from. Again, it wasn't foxnews.com or uh, the Daily Caller or any of the shows that you would associate with the right. 
it was 4chan and 8chan and storefront. He was in a completely different. And anything that you would ever even encounter, let alone consume, if you're consuming or watching any mainstream media outlet or even what's considered dissent. It's so far removed from any of that. Now, despite all that, what I just said, that he went out of his way to specifically list who his renouncing his uh, affinity for mainstream political conservatism. He talked about um, the shooter in New Zealand, uh, Brenton Tarrant, who he was most influenced by, had a section where he said one of the turning points for him was when Emmanuel Macron beat Marine Le Pen in, 19, in, in 2017 for president of France. And he talked about how Marine Le Pen was basically this sort of cocked loser, this milk toast, um, barely, you know, sort of right wing uh, person who all she wanted to do was deport a few illegal immigrants, which was wildly inadequate in his mind. So to try and even claim that these guys who do these sorts of things are feeding on anything resembling mainstream conservatism is blatantly false. They themselves renounce that. They talk about who their influences are and what writings they're consuming and that are influencing them. It has nothing to do with any of these things. And yet, literally before the corpses could be removed from the street, while they were still laying inside that supermarket in Buffalo and in the parking lot immediately outside, and I don't mean that metaphorically, I mean literally while the corpses were still there, Huge numbers of in unity before they could possibly have even read that entire manifesto, let alone analyzed it. Obviously, before any investigation was conducted into this person's life to determine whether they were primarily motivated by ideology or mental health struggles or a common uh, Islamic where a, someone who's Muslim and acts alone goes and shoots a place up and people immediately say, well, he's Muslim. He, he, he said Allah Akbar. He had some writings about uh, hating the United States for its foreign policy. Therefore, we must immediately decide that this is primarily motivated by Islamic radicalism. Sometimes it is, often it's have to be to just in a very cold-blooded way walk up to random innocent human beings with no power and unflinchingly pull a trigger and deliberately shoot them in the head or the chest in order to end their lives. There was no interest in waiting for any facts to emerge or for them to even be able to process what was available. They instantly said, 
that the person responsible, it wasn't Fox News, it wasn't American conservatism, it was one person and one person in particular, Tucker Carlson, who just so happens to be the single most watched as an enemy. And they regard him as an enemy not only because he is associated with conservatism, you can see that they hate Tucker Carlson in a way that, for example, they don't hate Sean Hannity or other more traditional Republican pundits or Republican activists, because one of the things that Sean Hannity does is fill the role that everybody's comfortable with, which is you're allowed to be a Democratic partisan, you're allowed to be a Republican Party partisan, as long as you're staying within the two-party political system, everyone's pretty comfortable with that. It's when you wander outside of that accepted duopoly and start introducing heterodox and unorthodox views designed to change those political parties as opposed to preserve them or question their orthodoxies rather than embrace them, that's what gets people very unsettled. That's the reason why Donald Trump was such a shock to the system in a way that Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or Mitt Romney never would have been for liberals. They could have lived with them. Their their traditional into the Bush-Cheney foreign policy of wars and imperialism and militarism and regime change, questioning NATO, spewing contempt for and suspicion of the CIA. And even when it came to domestic policy and foreign policy and, and economic policy, he really ran against what had been for decades the kind of foundational Reagan-esque view of of economic policy, which is tax cut for the rich because a rising tide lifts all boats. And if you're poor, you're working class, you should be on your knees praying every day for corporations and rich people to get richer because that will trickle down and benefit you as well. Trump had none of that. He was telling the working class that the system of elites on Wall Street and Silicon Valley were screwing them over through globalism and trade that was tripping their their towns of their jobs. And that's what made Trump so disturbing to them was not his ideology per se, but the fact that he wasn't predictable. And this is why they're so concerned about Tucker Carlson, because the reality is so often Tucker Carlson is off key, not. They're worried that he's changing the Republican Party in a way that makes it less safer to the ruling class elite. And I can give you so many examples of where he criticizes Trump. Obviously, right now, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, he's on the opposite side, not only of the bipartisan consensus overwhelmingly in the West, but also the overwhelming view of the Republican Party, which is he's opposed to further U.S. involvement in Ukraine. He's questioning the ongoing viability of NATO and the reason we need to constantly fight wars. He has done segments questioning the value of capitalism and neoliberalism and who it's benefiting. So he's not just their target of complete contempt because he's the most watched person on television. It's because he's not controllable by the standard partisan binary. And in fact, there's ratings data that shows 
that if you look at Democrats in the 18 to 54 age group, the the kind of most coveted age group for advertisers because they're still young enough to be um, impressionable to buy products, the most coveted audience for television, Democrats in that younger age group out of CNN, MSNBC and, and Fox, the dirty little secret is they're watching Fox more than those other two networks. And they're in particular watching Tucker even more than Rachel Maddow. That's what scares the shit out of the bipartisan political and media elite when it comes to Tucker Carlson. And that was why they saw this opportunity in those corpses. And that's really what it was. It was an opportunity. They looked at those corpses opportunistically, exploitatively. They didn't care at all about those dead people. And one way I can prove that to you is every single day, there are horrific murders that these same people ignore because they can't squeeze political benefit out of. Many of you probably don't know that three or four days ago, there was a person dressed in all black. I think his race is unknown. He walked into a nail salon and he he shot three Korean women who work in the nail salon for reasons that seem racially motivated, but no one knows for sure. But since there's no uh, political value to be extracted out of it, the way there was that time in Atlanta when the person, the shooter was white, who killed and shot at Korean women, even though the police themselves ruled, the FBI did that it wasn't a hate crime, that it wasn't racially motivated. At least there was a way to pretend that it was, and it got tons of media attention because that was when... Ibram Kendi got to say the ideology behind this wave of anti-Asian violence is white supremacy. And I remember that I hate trended for 48 hours on Twitter, two straight days, simply for asking the question, is there any evidence to substantiate Ibram and uh, Kendi's claim that the ideology driving anti-Asian violence is white supremacy? In order to say that, you would have to actually know and prove that the majority of people engaged in anti-Asian violence are white, and you'd further have to know that their motive wasn't robbery or stealing or mental illness, that it was just hate crimes, white supremacy. And there's no data that, that substantiated that at all. But every time this class of liberal political and media figures sees a murder that, or a set of murders that has no political value to them, they ignore them, even when they're mass shootings. It's only when they see an opportunity to advance their tawdry political agenda do they start caring. And in this case, they instantly saw a way to blame these killings on Tucker Carlson because the killer had killed in the name of what he and people like him called the great replacement theory which is the theory I outlined at the beginning that the influx of uh, non-white people into white countries, people, countries of European descent is causing white people to be replaced genetically, which is a form of white genocide. And therefore those white people need to be, the non-white people need to be deported or murdered. And because Dr. Carlson participates in the mainstream debate over what limits there should be on immigration and use the word replacement in a completely different context than 
those that group of people who I referenced as the people who inspired him use it. Namely, Tucker Carlson uses it in the way that Democratic Party strategists have been using it for years. Democratic Party strategists have been writing books and articles, celebratory ones, saying that the United States was headed toward a permanent Democratic majority because immigration was changing the demographics of the United States in which old, white, rich people were being replaced demographically by non-white people from Central America and Latin America who were more inclined to vote Democrat. And that was going to change the political composition of the United States. That's what Democrats say is happening, that conservative white voters are being replaced by more liberal, more Democratic Party friendly, non-white voters, and therefore it's creating a permanent Democratic majority. Tucker Carlson, when he talks about immigration, agrees that that's what's happening. And he points to the Democrats who are saying it as proof. The only difference is the Democrats say that it's a good thing. And for some reason, that's perfectly fine to observe that exact phenomenon, but say that it's a good thing. But what you're not allowed to do is observe that phenomenon and say that you think it's a bad thing, that it's causing too rapid of changes to the country in a way that the country can't assimilate. But obviously, Tucker Carlson has never gotten close, nor has any person on mainstream television or any person in mainstream conservatism to saying that citizens of the United States are not really citizens if they're non-white or that there's a hierarchy of American citizens in which white Americans are more legitimate citizens than, say, Black Americans who have been here for generations, or Latin Americans who have come here and immigrated legally and become citizens, or Asian Americans, or Indian Americans, or anyone else. There's no argument at all, implicitly or explicitly, from Tucker Carlson that it even pertains to that theory that is motivating these handful of individuals to go on these murder sprees, let alone him endorsing it. And in fact, almost every time I've been on Tucker Carlson's program, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that, almost every time I've ever been on Tucker Carlson's program, I've heard him say exactly the opposite. Tucker, The, the argument that Tucker Carlson has advanced over the last three to four years, more than any other, and I'm not saying this from a data analysis, so maybe there's an argument or two where he said that, that that is advocated more frequently, but certainly just impressionistically and in my own anecdotal experience of having been on his show many times and therefore heard it, having seen all kinds of monologues posted on my timeline by his fans and his haters. The number one argument that I hear him making more than any other and that he made in his monologue on Monday night right before I went on when talking about Buffalo is that he believes any ideology, any political theory that depends upon evaluating the worth of human beings based on race is inherently evil. Inherently evil. He makes that argument in the context of why he finds woke ideology or human resource policies that are designed to divide us by race, why he finds those kinds of ideologies repugnantly divisive, because they divide us upon race rather than evaluating us as individuals. 
they determine our worth and our goodness, not based on our actions and choices and our character, but based on demographic characteristics into which we were born and over which we had no choice. And Tucker's primary moral core, his worldview, the anchor ideology that he has is that evaluating people on the basis of their race is one of the most evil things you can do since we're all equal in God's eyes. And so to take somebody who constantly and repeatedly says that not as a throwaway line, but as central to the worldview they defend to millions of people each night and to link them as some sort of comrade or fellow traveler or mentor to somebody who has the exact opposite view that the only value and worth of a person is decided by their race is sickeningly defamatory and dishonest. And what made it so particularly vile, aside from how fast they did it without even pretending to know any of the facts, is that there was no proof, no evidence that this kid even knew who Tucker Carlson was, had ever even heard of him. No evidence that he ever watched his show a single time or heard him speak. No evidence that he liked him and didn't hate him. And to the extent we know or have evidence about who and what influenced this person, all we know is what he told us. And what he told us is there was a long line of people who influenced him, none of whom have anything to do with or have anything in common with Tucker Carlson. So everything about what this kind of liberal left sector of politics and media did, and and I say liberal left because as usual, even though liberals and the left insist upon this mythology that they're incredibly different groups and they believe radically different things, in reality, they're almost always on the same side, particularly since the advent of Trump and since Bernie and AOC told them that the only way to do politics is to pledge your loyalty and remain in captivity to the Democratic Party. Every time there's a controversy, the so-called left is on exactly the same side as establishment liberals in the Democratic Party. Chuck Schumer wrote a letter to Rupert Mur- Murdoch, essentially demanding implicitly that Tucker Carlson be removed from the airwaves based on the lie that he advocates the great replacement theory. And that's the view of every leftist I know as well. The real purpose of it is to set up a framework to get Tucker Carlson off the air. To start laying the foundation for the view, the framework that we all agree upon, that anytime anyone goes and commits violence in the name of white nationalism or racism, Tucker Carlson is to blame. So imagine a scenario where, like we've seen before in other contexts and other causes, instead of one lone 18-year-old, we have five or six or eight better trained groups of people who follow the same ideology who go and kill not 10 people, but 210, a kind of mass casualty attack like the one we saw in Paris a few years ago in the name of radical Islam, where people went into, they went into crowded nightclubs where people couldn't escape and just started machine gunning as many people as they could. I believe, I forget the exact number, 150 died, something like that. Or a Pulse nightclub 
style shooting in Orlando that killed 49 people. Imagine if it's something like that, something even more traumatic. And now we have the framework in place that each and every time that happens, Tucker Carlson is to blame because he's the one inspiring all this violence. How long do you think advertisers and even Fox News is going to be willing to keep them on there? That's the purpose of all this, not to truthfully analyze why this happened. You just read the manifesto and you know exactly where this kid is getting his information. This, these kind of kids are not watching Fox News. But they don't care about the truth. And if you know anything about the American media in this sector of the political class, you know that. But I want to move away from the specifics for a minute. And I want to focus on this broader question that has interested me for a long time. Which is, let's just assume hypothetically for the moment, even though it's not true, for the sake of argument, that Tucker Carlson's ideology, in fact, overlaps significantly with the shooters. Let's just assume that. And let's further assume, even though it's also not true, at least as far as we know, that this person was a fan of Tucker Carlson's show and watched it regularly. I still think there's an extremely important question about whether we blame and assign guilt to public figures who express views passionately, but who do not advocate violence. Nobody can claim that Tucker Carlson has ever instructed or even implied that his followers or fans or comrades ideologically should go and engage in violence of any kind in, in, in advancing that agenda. So assuming there's a public figure who passionately advocates views, an ideology, a worldview, who constantly rails against whatever they perceive as injustices, and then somebody who's listening, someone who's a fan, goes out without being told to on their own and engages in violence and commits murder or other acts of aggression or violence in the name of that ideology, when, if ever, can we blame the public figure who's advocating or defending this ideology? I think it's an incredibly important question to ask for many reasons. Most of all, because I think what's crucial is that if we're going to have a moral framework that we're all going to unite and agree to and apply, it has to be consistent. You know, we can't have a so-called moral framework that says if somebody goes and kills in the name of white supremacy, we blame Tucker Carlson. But if somebody goes and kills in the name of hating Donald Trump and the Republican Party, we don't blame Rachel Maddow. Or if somebody goes and puts a firebomb in a pro-life activism office because they're being told that people who are activists against abortion are endangering women, as just happened in Wisconsin, we don't go and blame Amy Klobuchar because she's pro-choice or Planned Parenthood. So it has to be either or. You have to settle on a consistent standard. You don't get to just pick a standard that applies to your political enemies, but not to your political allies. Because if you're doing that, it's not a moral principle. It has nothing to do with principles or morality. It's just naked political opportunism exploiting corpses in order to do it. One of the most ghoulish, soulless things I could possibly imagine. So just in order to share that a little bit of analysis of that question, I want to tell you about what might actually be my favorite Supreme Court case ever. 
And I realize the fact that I have a favorite Supreme Court case kind of makes me a lawyer nerd. Because who else has favorite Supreme Court cases besides nerdy lawyers? So I guess I'll have to plead guilty to that, though. In my defense, I haven't practiced law since 2007 or 8. So I think there has to be a statute of limitations when you're no longer considered a lawyer. I demand that there be. But this is a case that I cited often in the First Amendment work that I did when I represented clients and free speech cases. It's a case that I've cited many times throughout my work as a journalist in ways that some of you will probably agree with and some of you won't. But to me, it's a very important principle. So the case is a 1982 ruling, a unanimous ruling. ACP versus Claiborne Hardware Store. It's a really interesting case. What happened was in the late 1960s and 1970s, local NAACP chapters in Mississippi and Alabama were urging boycotts of white-owned stores as a protest against Jim Crow and other forms of racial inequality and racial injustice. And some of the members of those chapters, some of the more radical extremist members of the NAACP, didn't just boycott the stores or advocate a boycott. They engaged in violence in order to advance that boycott. They burned down stores that they perceived were purposely violating the boycott. They engaged in violence against both Black and white people who they felt were failing to observe the boy be damaged. And so the state of Mississippi decided that the people who were to blame for this violence and destruction were not just the individuals who went and burned down the buildings, but instead were the leaders of the NAACP chapters. And the theory the state of Mississippi used in order to legally hold them liable is exactly the same one as the entire liberal left sector of media and politics this weekend embraced in order to find Tucker Carlson guilty for a murder before the bodies were even removed from the street. The theory was that although these NAACP leaders did not themselves strike a match to gasoline and burn down any buildings, that by giving fiery speeches that riled people up in defense of the boycott, by inciting people into anger and rage over the injustices posed by white Southerners, they had incited these acts of violence through their words. They basically just got people so angry and so worked up and so agitated and tell them, go out and burn down stores. They didn't need to. They kind of winked at it. And the speeches were so inflammatory that they could anticipate that the likely outcome was violence and therefore they should be responsible for the violence was going to be the outcome of their speeches. And in the state of Mississippi, throughout the court system, the NAACP's uh, NAACP judges ruled against them 
juries found that their speeches were so incendiary that it was completely predictable that some of their followers were going to go and engage in violence and therefore they should be responsible. They imposed liability on them in, in, in enormous amounts of money because there was a lot of property damage that would have bankrupted the local NAACP chapters as well as individually the leaders of those chapters. So the case went to the Supreme Court and the fact that it was 1982 shows you how long it took to wind through the system. Lots of trials, lots of appeals, remands. So by the time it got there, it was almost 12 years later. And what the Supreme Court said unanimously in a brilliantly written and persuasive ruling was that the First Amendment does not permit people to be held responsible for the consequences of their peaceful actions or their constitutionally protected words. So if you go and you give a speech about the evils of abortion and how abortion providers are murderers killing babies and you show really graphic pictures of what abortion entails and someone in the audience gets so moved by anger and disgust at what abortion is and goes and shoots an abortion doctors, you can't be held liable because all you've done is exercise your First Amendment right to express your views. Now, if you go and tell them and plan with them how to go kill people and engage in violence, obviously that's a crime. But if all you're doing is expressing your ideas and it just so happens that someone hears it and gets inspired to go commit crimes, the Claiborne court said unanimously that the First Amendment doesn't permit you to be held legally liable. And while this is a legal ruling and a constitutional ruling, and you might want to say that doesn't mean that we can't ethically or politically hold people like Tucker Carlson responsible or Rachel Maddow. The reasoning of the court actually applies well beyond just this purely narrow legalistic um, strain of reasoning, because the the violent consequences of their speech, you basically make it so that nobody can actually practice free speech in reality because every ideology, every single ideology has the potential to attract violent people, to attract psychopaths, to to attract extremists who will go and murder if they hear you speak and find you persuasive enough. And there is nothing that I can't show you cases where people engaged in horrific violence in the name of that cause. As I said in 2017, on TV every night, saying that Trump and his supporters were fascists and white nationalists and Kremlin agents and threats to the Republic and planning to overthrow democracy and implement a fascist re- One of the people who was a huge fan of Rachel Maddow and who listened to her all the time took what she said seriously and picked up a gun and went to 
a softball field where he knew Republican congressmen practice each Saturday for a charity game that they were playing in. And he shot as many people as he could. And on that day, he ended up shooting five people, one of whom was Steve Scalise, the then House Majority Whip, who was standing on second base, shot him in the hip. He crawled to safety as the shooter tried to shoot him as he was crawling. He was hospitalized for six weeks, endured multiple surgeries, came very close to dying on at least two occasions. And I don't remember anybody, certainly nowhere near the level of what we just heard, suggesting that Rachel Maddow should be taken off the air because she's inspiring murder and violence by demonizing Republicans and causing people to want to go murder them. big, big fan of Bernie Sanders. It actually volunteered for his campaign when door-to-door canvassing in Iowa for Bernie Sanders. No one blamed Bernie Sanders, even though Bernie Sanders was out there saying that Republicans were the reason why your kids can't go to college or get health care, why people are dying. Because it's insane to think that Rachel Maddow or Bernie Sanders, who never tell anyone to go commit violence in the name of that ideology should be blamed for someone taking their word seriously and going out and and killing. Maybe the guy was insane. Maybe he was an extremist, maybe some combination of both, but no one did it because it's, it's, it's inane. In the past three or four years, there have been at least a dozen shootings and killings, including of police officers by African-Americans who either identify as black nationalists who are kind of vague followers of Louis Farrakhan, but often so who aren't followers of Farrakhan, who just have connected into the discourse of the Black Lives Matter movement, who believe that the police are inherently racist, that the United States is a overwhelmingly white supremacist and evil country, and who uh, come to believe that white people themselves are evil, They pick up guns, they go and shoot and murder police officers or white people. Nobody says that New York Times op-ed writers or Joy Reid or any number of people who write at The Atlantic who constantly propagate that ideology that the police are racist, that the United States is a white supremacist, or that spread the ideology in, in whose name these people go and murder are responsible in any way for those murders because they too aren't telling people to go kill. So if you really want to have a standard now that holds public figures responsible anytime someone goes and murders in the name of a cause that they themselves believe in, and again, that wasn't even the case here with Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is not an advocate of the great replacement theory, as used by these people. He's an enemy of it. And the fact that he's used the word replacement when talking about immigration doesn't change that fact because so too of democratic strategists. But even if he were an advocate of that theory, if you really want to now have a standard that says anytime someone goes and murders in the name of an ideology that you as a public figure, advocate the list of people with blood on their hands is going to be extremely long. In fact, I think there will be nobody left in public life who ever expresses a political opinion who will be immune from being called a murderer.
And all I I think we need is whatever standard we settle on be applied consistently. Because that's the only way that we can ensure we have a fair standard is if you don't just get to impose it on your enemies, but also on yourself. If you have to live with the standards you're imposing on other people. And that's what liberals above all else try not to do. They genuinely believe and will sometimes even explicitly argue that because they are good people with a benevolent ideology, the standards that people with malevolent ideologies have to live under, they're exempt from. And that just isn't going to work. Human beings don't have the power, the prerogative to declare themselves exempt from standards that they impose on everybody else. So that was really what I wanted to get out of my system now that we have a little bit more knowledge about who this 18-year-old is, the mental health problems that he has struggled through, the fact that zero evidence has emerged that he even knew who Tucker Carlson was, let alone in any way was influenced by him. And yet we heard the last four or five days, nothing but Tucker Carlson being accused of murder in every way except being indicted. And we've even heard some people on MSNBC suggesting that the Republican Party should be a terrorist party like Al-Qaeda or that Tucker Carlson should be, if, if not prosecuted, taken off the air based on this incredibly opportunistic and warped theory. Now, I want to just quickly delve into what seems like an unrelated topic, but in fact is extremely related to me. It's a topic we talked about before, which was the announcement 22 days ago that the Department of Homeland Security is creating what it calls a disinformation board and has chosen to run that board, one of the most absurd and laughable caricatures and resistance cartoons ever to appear on the public scene. Sort of like the think tank version of of Taylor Lorenz, but a little even more unhinged. And not coincidentally, it was Taylor Lorenz herself who, quote unquote, broke the story, meaning she's friends with Nina Yankovic, the person that was going to run that board, which makes total sense. And Nina Yankovic told her her version of events, which Taylor Lorenz wrote down and published as a news article saying that basically Homeland pause and that she had originally resigned and they convinced her not to, but that at least for the moment, this board is not going to go forward. And the reason I say it's so related is because the reason it's so important to liberals to blame Tucker Carlson for these murders is because they need to get him off the air because he's a threat to them because he reaches a lot of people and convinces them to think things that they don't want people to think. The same reason why three months ago, they were doing exactly the same thing to Joe Rogan. Claiming that Joe Rogan was a racist, was a transphobe, a white supremacist, and therefore Spotify should remove him. It's the number one objective of liberal activism by far is to silence their political enemies. One way is by blaming you for murder, the way they did Tucker Carlson. The other way, the really serious and more dangerous way, is by seizing the power to decree what is and is not disinformation, which is what this Homeland Security Board was intended to do. 
And the reason is, is because unlike 10 or 20 years ago, when the main rationale for liberals, when they wanted to censor was, this is hate speech, that has now been replaced by, this needs to be censored because it's quote unquote disinformation. And therefore, whoever has the power to decree whatever is disinformation is basically the person who has the power to decree what can and cannot be heard on the internet, because that is what Facebook and Google and Twitter and media outlets will use to determine what people should hear. The what is disinformation? You look to the authority, you look to the official decree, which is supposed to come from Homeland Security. Now, this a lot of people seem to think Homeland, the story is that Homeland Security has killed this board. I think I was a little sloppy and, and kind of suggesting that as well throughout the day. In reality, some smart people have come along and said, if you look closely, that's really not what they're saying. And it makes total sense. We're not killing it at all. Homeland Security didn't wake up and decide to relinquish the power to control the Internet. It's not that they did, they did anything authoritarian or overstepped their, the limits of their power. They realized that they brandished, they branded this all wrong. The messaging was bad. They didn't explain it. It created the backlash. And that's why they need to retool it. So they're going to come back with this. There are already lots of different programs to have them wield the power to declare what isn't, isn't disinformation. And framework to try and suggest that anybody who has an ideology that deviates from liberalism is guilty of murder or inciting violence. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about the vote on Ukraine and and the unanimous support by the squad and every other Democrat for Josh Hawley today said he was going to vote. No, I believe Rand Paul has strongly indicated, if not outright said he will vote no. So there's some interesting political dynamics there, but just to get to as many people as possible in the queue, um, let me go ahead and stop there. If you want to talk about any of those things or anything else, feel free to, when I call on you and you're up in the queue, just click the microphone icon at the bottom, which will cause you to go from mute to unmuted, and we will all be able to hear you. So the first caller is Rodrigo. Good evening and welcome, Rodrigo. Hey, Glenn. Uh, that was a good, uh, a lot of good information. Um, your audio keeps cutting out. I'm not sure if you noticed. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. We've had internet problems all day. Um, I was hoping it would be okay, but, um, yeah, we, we did the best we could. Gotcha. Um, yeah, my question is brief. Uh, I was just curious. Um, um, I saw Kaylin Johnston's, uh, she's put out a Substack article basically uh, talking about how, like, you uh, you mentioned Tucker Carlson in, in your monologue now, and um, um, I guess – you have stated uh, to play devil's advocate. You have stated that um, he 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 is anti-war, but um, uh, Kalen's argument is that Tucker isn't an ally when it comes to like being anti-war. If um, the fact that he has a number one news show, like right now in the U.S., uh, 
wouldn't that imply that he's no threat to the security state, the military industrial complex when you compare it to somebody like anti-war journalists like um, Phil Donahue or Chris Hedges? Um, wouldn't that be proof that Tucker really isn't a threat? And, and when, he wa- when he watches monologues, I mean, it seems that Tucker doesn't really seem to be completely anti-war. Rather, his focus wants to... Rather, I think his intentions seem to be that he wants to shift attention away from Ukraine and have like a shift attention to China. I guess I was just curious to hear what your response to that kind of argument would be. Hold on. You know, I'm going to change my internet connection um, just to try and a little better. So hold on one second. Um, There might be a little interruption while I do that. Um, Hopefully that worked out okay. Are you able to hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. So, look, I mean, in politics, in my view, whatever issue is before you, and that is the most important issue, you should look for allies who will work with you and have the same position as you so that you can win the actual issue that's before you without worrying about whether in some future debate 10 years from now, that person is also going to be standing on your side and is the perfect ally. So in 2002, one of the most vocal and prescient and intelligent and persuasive opponents of the Iraq war at a time when all the Democratic heroes like Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Joe Biden were advocating for the war, either because they believed in it or because they believed it was important for their future political aspirations, was Pat Buchanan. Why was Pat Buchanan opposed to the Iraq war? Iraq were worth risking American lives and American treasure in order to go fight to change their country. Now, maybe there would have been some future war, maybe China, maybe some other war, where Pat Buchanan would have advocated for the war. Maybe you can say he's not the perfect uh, anti-war ally. He doesn't share all of Noam Chomsky's views. Maybe that's true. But at the time, he was an extremely vocal and influential anti-war advocate. And to me, that made him much better than any of the Democrats who were actually trying to push that war and make it happen. So... What I can tell you is the following. When President Trump ordered that very dangerous strike inside Iran or inside Iraq, but against uh, General Salome, it was Tucker Carlson, who was one of the very few people on television who condemned it. Go Google that. You'll find Tucker saying, why would we possibly risk a war with Iran to go kill this general? How did this benefit the United States in any way? When the outbreak of protest in Havana happened eight months ago against the Cuban government. And everyone from both parties said, we need to stand by the Cuban protesters and help them overthrow the government of Cuba. The only place that I could go to argue that the United States had no business interfering in the internal affairs of Cuba Cuba was the Tucker Carlson show. Ever since the prospect of Russia invading Ukraine emerged, one of the very few people on television with the courage to break from the consensus and say the United States should not be involved in this war. This is not our war to fight. 
we're only going to make it worse was Tucker Carlson. He's been one of the few people really uh, vocal about the dangers of the CIA and the FBI and the NSA and the U.S. security state. So, look, maybe Caitlin Johnson is right that like three years from now or five years from now or eight years from now, when, I don't know, China goes and invades Taiwan and the U.S. starts to consider whether to have a war, maybe suddenly Tucker Carlson will be on the other side. And if he is, then you'll treat him like an adversary then. But I don't understand what this fixation is with inventing non-existent future scenarios and insisting that the person who is currently your ally in this future, not yet here, is going to be. And what I honestly think it is, is that people who have grown up identifying with political leftism, it, it's like it's almost like a religious need for them to believe that nothing positive can ever happen politically except on what they view as the political left. And if it seems like something positive is happening on the political right, like Josh Hawley being one of the main advocates of breaking up big tech in the name of antitrust, it must be because there's something corrupt going on. Like he doesn't really mean it. He's only doing it to be a presidential nominee. He's not really sincere. It's like this desire to lose this, this refusal to look for political coalitions. And, you know, I, what can I say about the claim that, you know, if there's a war with China, Tucker Carlson is going to be chairing the war. I mean, does she have like a Ouija board? I, I don't know what Tucker Carlson is going to say about that. I can actually guess, and I guess might be different, but I don't know either. But what I know right now is there's a very dangerous war in Ukraine involving the two countries with the greatest nuclear cells on the planet. On the right side, most Democrats, all Democrats aren't. And that's to Thank you, Glenn. That was a really good answer. Okay, Rodrigo, I appreciate you bringing that up. I appreciate the opportunity to um, address it. Let me go ahead and take the next caller, um, who is, I believe it's Andrew. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, hey, Glenn. Glad to get away from the distortion chamber of Twitter today, especially. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I really enjoyed your Substack piece. And uh, there was one passage you, uh, you, you discussed it today uh, about, you know, uh, about, you know, what Tucker has said in, in his previous monologues. I don't watch his shows. I see some clips, so I'm not that familiar with what he says. Um, anyway, I posted a clip and I got some responses and to that, which I thought were rather uh, not very good or not very helpful. But I also sent it to uh, Matt Welsh at Reason. And he had a, I put it in the comments, unless I don't expect you to read it today, obviously maybe another time, but it was a, a Matt last December uh, wrote an article about Hungarian nationalism as a dead end. It's about Viktor Orban and how some conservatives like Tucker uh, or, or admire him and what he's been doing. And of course, Matt's piece is rather critical. Uh, one counterpoint that Matt mentioned was that he said, uh, um, "Just I'll just read this part of it. It said that Carlson, the uh, same week that Pence was in Budapest, Carlson re re reiterated his oft-repeated claim that the Biden administration was actively seeking to 
quote, change the racial mix of the country, explaining ominously that in political terms, this policy is called the great replacement, uh, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. Now, that's just one part of it. I think there's a more interesting aspect is why why conservatives like Tucker are interested or, you know, are kind of promoting what Viktor Orban was doing in Hungary. Um, and like I said, this is something probably for another discussion. It'd be interesting. I, I know you've had Tucker on your podcast before. It'd be interesting uh, from my perspective to see how Tucker reacts, you know, how he would, why Hungary, what Hungary's been doing, what Viktor Orban's been doing was attractive to him and some other conservatives. But anyway, I just wanted to put that out there as a counter. The only counterpoint I heard that seemed to be pretty reasonable. But again, I thought your piece was really good, and I just thought I'd make that comment. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me let me let me tell you about a, a what I consider very similar, though it'll seem very unrelated, uh, episode that I observed once early on in my career of, of writing about politics. It was like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I forget exactly what the controversy was. But it had to do with Israel and Palestine. And Barack Obama and the Democrats had taken a position slightly more critical of Israel than the Republicans had. Obviously, Israel is one of those positions where the two parties are almost entirely in unison. And whenever they have even very minor differences, they get blown up into huge differences because of how inflammatory and polarizing that debate is. So the Democrats had a position, I believe it was Obama, who that was slightly more critical or less supportive of Israel than the Bush and, and Cheney administration. And there were a bunch of articles that appeared at the time from Bill Kristol and in the Weekly Standard by Max Boot, by Jewish Republicans who were arguing explicitly that it was immoral in light of this debate for any Jewish Americans to vote for Democrats because Republicans were so much better when it came to protecting Israel than Democrats were. Now, obviously, the premise of that argument is that American Jews, when they go to the ballot box and decide who they're going to vote for or which party to support, don't make their decision based primarily on what's best for the United States, but instead what's best for Israel. Otherwise, the argument wouldn't make any sense. Why would it make any sense to say American Jews cannot morally support the Democratic Party given the Republican Party is so much on Israel, unless you're assuming that a major factor in how American Jews cast their votes in, in elections is, is based on what's good for Israel. That's the premise of the question. Now, nobody minds that, 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 that meaning what they're saying that a lot of American Jews speak their decisions politically based on a couch about what's for Israel. Obviously, that's going to get labeled anti Semitic. Because it's the due loyalty theory. It's the idea that American Jews don't have primary loyalty to the United States, but instead to Israel. So it was the first case right. where I realized that if you take a premise, a factual premise, and affirm it and say that it's a good thing, it becomes permissible. But if you agree with that premise, but say it's a bad thing, then it becomes bigoted or, or unacceptable. 
and this is what is it, it, it very much seems to me to be happening in, in this whole point and, and even with Victor Orban. As I said, you can find books by Democratic strategists saying that the immigration policies of the United States are going to change the culture and demographic makeup to make the States less white and therefore make it less conservative, which will help the Democratic Party. Joe Scarborough in 2020 said, from now on, Texas and North Carolina are both going to be blue and not red because of demo- because of immigration. And he ended it by saying demographics is destiny. So when Tucker is, is pointing this argument, he's saying the Democrats are saying right. this is why they see immigration as a good thing because it changes the nature of the country. But I, Tucker Carlson, don't see it as a good thing. And, and so it becomes acceptable and seemingly enlightened and humanitarian if you say that it's a good thing. But if you agree it's happening but think it's bad, it suddenly becomes bigoted. And I look at Tucker Carlson's admiration for Orban, which I don't share, but I know, understand what, what his argument is, which is that he views himself not as answerable to some vague international community or to the EU officials in Brussels, but to the Hungarian people who elected him. And Hungarians don't want an influx of huge numbers of immigrants into their country who don't share their language and don't share their culture because they believe it will make the society worse. And he has been willing to stand up for the wishes and interests of his people in order to defy the EU and everybody else. In order to is that view an inherently racist view that the goal of political leaders should be to carry out the wishes of their citizens and that a lot of people for a lot of reasons don't want unconstrained immigration. Remember that you know I remember when I started writing in 2005, the idea of immigration reform, of passing a, a law to make immigration easier, was being advocated by George Bush and Dick Cheney in the Chamber of Commerce, and the standard view right. on the left from Bernie Sanders and like old leftist leaders like Jeremy Corbyn and union leaders like Cesar Chavez was that this is a chamber of commerce plot to import cheap labor in order to drive down the wages of American workers. They had a a very anti-immigration view that it would be bad for American citizens to have unconstrained immigration. Suddenly this view has become demonized as 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 racist even though it's the same argument being advanced right 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 i hear you're getting at it would be very interesting i said it's been a while you had a tucker on your podcast i guess it's been about a couple of years ago right and i know you you interviewed him i know he interviewed you uh, on his fox nation show i listened to that i thought i, I really enjoyed that but it'd be good for you to talk with him again about some of these issues uh, to, to kind of clarify, it would be an interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a great idea. Um, you know, I think uh, Tucker's. Uh, I know he had a million other things going on. But no, but anyway, but but, but it's great, and I'm sure he would do it. Um, I know he likes having his views challenged. I know, and that it was funny that case that created a gigantic uh, kind of panic attack and scandal inside the Intercept. The fact that I that it was Jeremy Scales' <laughs> podcast. He had to travel. He asked me to guest host it, and he told me you can have on whoever you want and do whatever you want.
And I remember it caused among the millennial staff this kind of mass um, psychosis about how can we possibly <laughs> give a platform to someone like Tucker Carlson when his audience was a hundred times greater than the internet. I'm sure if I did that, uh, it would be uh, a super interesting conversation. I think all right. Um, let me move to the next caller. Who? I- Sheila, go ahead. You can unmute yourself. Hi, Glenn. How's it going? How are you? Good. I'm. I'm really happy to talk to you about this subject matter. Um, over the years, I wasn't always a Tucker Carlson fan or an avid watcher, but I can say that I've seen an evolution in his delivery and production over the years. Now, before 2020, he was constantly grousing or or seeking to provoke um, members of his audience who were probably liberal Democrats and and people who had kind of uh, old entrenched you know belief systems that weren't conservative with conservatism and some of his other ideas. Now, this is one of the enduring ideas that's gone along with Tucker, but he's been kind of what I call a CIS guy. Um, the Center for Immigration Studies. Now, my only beef with CIS is that they have some stuff in their bag that certainly re- resembles a eugenics plan for North America. Okay, that's one of the reasons why I hit the mute button every time he plans, you know, with his planners, and and I see the guy with from Center for Immigration Studies on the tele- uh, 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 I gotta mute it. Sorry, sorry, Tucker. I can't listen to that. Um, it's it's just because of that he's trying to give a database remember when data was really important to the intercept and other liberal publications remember when data and data journalism seemed to be like the 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 hallmark and and some sort of you know sobriety test for for information and facts remember when that was the truth and so I mean, CIS would liberals call themselves the the fact-based community the fact-based community is how they refer to themselves Okay, so at the time when you became a regular on on Tucker Carlson, you had already passed through the veil of disapproval and lunacy, absolute lunacy. And what happened with Tucker Carlson's politics is that he jumped also through that veil because it was absolutely insane um, what happened to us in 2020. And he went over to the Trump camp. That's what happened. He became a Trump Republican. And that was the absolute apostasy to the Democratic Party. He's a, he was a California conservative Democrat who jumped through the veil. And then everyone he left behind was very angry. Could you see that? Could, could you conceive of that? Are you there, Glenn? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a real. Said that because it's yes. Now I can hear you. I, I couldn't hear you before. I couldn't hear you for yeah, like the, ten it, seconds. There, there's, a, there's a storm here, and, and so the internet is just very sketchy, unfortunately. But um, so I think what you said is very smart and very important, which is you know people forget that Tucker has been around corporate media pretty much since he's like 23. You know, he was. Um, 
he began as like a magazine writer and he used to write, I think it was Bill Crystal actually, who was one of his first mentors. And um, he then, you know, started to write for places like Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone. He was considered a great magazine writer. And, you know, then he uh, kind of became like the, the standard conservative on TV shows. He was, you know, infamously uncrossed. We lost you again, Glenn. Um, where? Crossfire. Yeah. So he was always the Yeah, yeah, keep going. And so he was very well liked for the reason I was saying that, you know, earlier that, you know, liberals don't really mind Sean Hannity because he played his he plays his role, his standard partisan role, and that's what Tucker did for twenty years or twenty five years. He was just the standard bow tied, you know, Republican, Reagan, Republican, Bush, Cheney, Republican, conservative. And, and people were fine with that. He was popular in the media. He worked at MSNBC and CNN. And I think you're exactly right that soon as he started to step outside those lines, those coloring lines and start to actually reject big parts of Republican orthodoxy and move further into the kind of populism that Trump injected into the Republican Party, that was when the hatred for him really became intensified because that's what makes people more oh, dangerous. Yeah. So I still have some questions for you if you want to tackle it. Sure. Um, that, that, that organize the whole uh, border orthodoxy or reorganize it rather. And um, see, because I, I tried to ask Stephen Miles this, but I, I wasn't afforded a microphone probably because I'm I'm not you know I believe in representative democracy and the, the the Congress and the Senate and because you know they aren't actually the government it's only the civil bureaucracy and the executive they're they're only the government not the third branch where we have a scotus in the courts that they need to be abolished and then the uh, the Congress is irrelevant uh, the, the only people who really matter are the civil the civil people according to Stephen Miles so, so let me just ask you these questions before it gets too late. So uh, this is a three-part question that was aimed at his cadre. Is Mexico part of U.S. foreign policy? Question. If so, what is the point of Biden's avoidance of China's presence in an active uh, militarized coalition with the narco cartels? Presuming there is one. And if Canada is coordinating by some measure of corruption, as well as Mexico, to also ignore China's infiltration by assimilating farmland, stealing intellectual property, laundering drug money in casinos through expensive land acquisitions on the West Coast in New York City, and now places like North Austin, Texas, and the Rio Grande Valley. Let's say we admit that there was corruption or a breach of propriety uh, could we pick up when when would it be okay to start picking up domestic protectionism of the border and of the u s people when, when would it be okay yeah those 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 are super complicated questions and I guess I mean maybe it'll sound like a cop out but what I really intended this to be is just a little humility about what I do and don't know or haven't haven't figured out if you go back all the way to like 2010 and then 2011 and 2012 Obama kept insisting look we need to stop being so obsessed with the Middle East. We need to start focusing like his famous pivot to Asia, because back then it was extremely obvious that China was becoming far and away the greatest competitor to the United States since at least the peak of Soviet power, wherever you want to identify that in the 60s and 70s. And 
we were off, you know, arguing about, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and Guantanamo and all these residual kind of relatively trivial policies from the war on terror that he couldn't get rid of. And then there'd be terrorist attacks and ISIS and all along, everybody was ignoring China. And in the Trump years, you know, one of the frustrations I had with Russiagate and the obsession on Russia was that, you know, just like Obama said on his way out, this obsession with Russia makes no sense. Like they are at most a regional power, you know, a mid-level regional power, which has an economy smaller than Italy. And the real action is what we're going to do with China and the power that China is, is, is beginning to assert in all parts of the world. And yet all we talked about was Russia and Russia Gate and this idiot conspiracy theory that went nowhere. And it's very difficult to discern in the first year of Biden's uh, administration with so much kind of, you know, one crisis after the next and an incredible ideological muddle. What is the, the Biden administration's view and that foreign policy apparatus's view of China? I don't really know. You know, is it there's a lot of you know, the thing that fascinates me about China as compared to other U.S. adversaries is that usually when there's a U.S. enemy, you get the entire all of the different power centers in the United States united against it. So you want to do a coup in Venezuela. Nobody minds. You want to be adversarial to Iran. Everyone gets on board with that. No one cares about Russia. China is probably the single most country by far that is the most important trading partner and most important business partner to Wall Street, which obviously still exerts a huge amount of power. And then on the other hand, you have the kind of Pentagon intelligence world that wants to start viewing China much more as an enemy. They didn't want the Cold War to be with Russia. They wanted it to be with China. And so how China is either appeased by some factions or confronted by others to me, it's a huge question mark, in, in part because we're so focused all the time on everything but that. And the last thing I'll add is, you know, being living here in Brazil, I could see China's power and the way that it, it, it manifests so much clearer than I do from looking at American politics, because China has become by far Brazilians, Brazil's biggest trading partner. No country can punish Brazil the way that China can. Um, a couple of Bolsonaro's sons are like very keyed into American right wing politics. They watch Fox News. They talk to Steve Bannon. Um, and so wow. a couple of times they've made some like very kind of um, ill advised and like just kind of wild, you know, anti Chinese statements. And the entire ruling class of Brazil, the generals and the oligarchs, have had to, you know, really denounce and apologize for those kinds of political comments because Brazil doesn't have the power to stand up to China. And this is replicating itself all over the world in Africa and in a lot of places in in Latin America. I interviewed Eva Morales and he talked endlessly about the good relationship Bolivia had with China. And I don't know, it just seems like the U.S. is, you know, while we're pouring now what's soon to be a hundred billion dollars and probably after that close to a trillion dollars into Ukraine, you know, I, I remember when the U.S. left Afghanistan, the Chinese said, you just spent $2 trillion on a country that you didn't change at all and got nothing for it. And while you were doing that, we spent $800 billion on a light rail system that connected our entire country and lets people in the furthest reaches of our country 
move around our country with extreme convenience and speed because that's what we spend our money on while you spend your money on wars. So Yeah, I mean, I've heard that argument from the, from other Chinese proponents actually in the tech fields when I was living in Seattle. And what I would tell them is that but all of, the, all of your people are slaves and, and they are owned by your government and they pay with themselves because of the government. A, a Uyghur doesn't have the same currency value as maybe a mainland, you know, currency worker or a banking person or somebody who's who works for the government. You know, they don't have the same currency. They're they're being slaved. So but, but, they're going to be stripped I, I, automatically. Of course, you're right. And then I guess the question is, you know, does um, a member of the working class or, you know, someone who's even lower than the working class, someone working to part-time jobs with no benefits in an Amazon warehouse have the same currency as, you know, somebody who lives in a liberal culture. I mean, is it really that different? I think it's worse. Um, so I'm not saying that China is moral, but what they are is efficient and accomplished, and that, that's what brings power. Well, I, I, li- I like that you're, you're challenging me, but they're, they're genocidal maniacs who are being tolerated by the international community. And they're they're ta- they're stealing farmland from people in Texas. Uh, covertly. I, I, all I'm saying is, you know, ultimately, what, what if you want to figure out how to deal with China, it has to be through a prism of power. That's that's the problem. You know, what would happen right now while the United States was engulfed in this proxy war with Russia if the Chinese decided to seize Taiwan? Do you think we have the capacity to fight both Russia and China at the same time? Do we abandon Ukraine? and let Russia win in order to go stop the Chinese? Do we just tell China to, to take Taiwan? I mean, if you don't deal with the question of power, then issues of morality really don't matter because you have the capacity to do nothing about them. I think that uh, this is the, the war discussion is a little teeny bit above my pay grade, but I think that the United States is expert at coalitioning when they need to. And if they wanted to pull power to defend Taiwan as a statement plate to the rest of the world, then the, jo- the rest of the world, who's been consecutively bullied by China, would join them quickly. I guess we'll find out. Um, lots of lots of future discussions about Thank you, China. Glenn. Thank you, Sheila. Those were a lot of really interesting observations and questions. I really appreciate it. I'm going to try and take uh, one or two more calls. Um, go ahead, Andrew. Andrew, are you there? If you're there, you just need to unmute yourself through the microphone icon at the bottom of the screen. Give you a couple seconds to see if you can figure it out. If not, um, we're going to have to move on. Sometimes you have to click a few times because it it can get a little suck. It gets a little sticky. Um, And then again, other times people go to the kitchen and make themselves a sandwich and don't realize they're next in line. So that might be the case here. So I'm going to have to take the next caller, which is Citizen. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Um, we should be able to hear you. Hey, Glenn. How are you doing? doing? Great. Uh, okay. I hope you're safe in the sto- uh, from the storm. There yeah, in, yeah. Uh, it's, it's fine. In your home. It's sketchy, the internet, but otherwise everything's fine. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely, definitely getting pretty robotic, but um, I, I had a, just a couple quick, quick ones that I wanted to th- throw. 
um, out there. Um, one of, the first one I wanted to ask real quick was about uh, liberalism. Um, and when we when we define liberalism nowadays, uh, like you were making a comment earlier about how liberal liberals have you know changed their views on on censorship and, and stuff like that, uh, and how they justified it. Um, and I totally agree with what you're saying, but do we need to delineate between liberals and maybe professional class uh, liberals at this point? Because a lot of the liberals that I grew up with and know are pretty much just as horrified it's, uh, by what's happening, especially in the Democratic Party since pretty much, you know, the 90s, um, uh, you know, and the, the, the big pivot that they made. Um, at that point, uh, but that they still, it, it, in many respects, kind of similar to you, I'm not lab labeling you in any way a liberal or not a liberal, but um, where you haven't really changed your viewpoints. One of the things that I really admire about you and uh, your things that you dealt with at The Intercept was that you didn't really change your viewpoints, you know, because of, you know, for politics, you know, you, you wanted to look at Hunter Biden's laptop, you wanted to report about it, you thought it was a story, and you got flack. So that was the first one I wanted you to comment on. And then the second question I had, um, I, when you were talking, I was kind of thinking about this old film called uh, Keeper of the Flame, which was a, like 30 years, or I think probably like a 30s or 40s film with Spencer Tracy, where they talk about how this guy who's admired as a, as a great American was actually planning you know, to uh, disrupt, you know, uh, American culture by pitting uh, the races against each other, pitting everybody against each other um, so that they, they could continue to, you know, further their agenda without anybody ever politically being able to create any kind of, um, you know, uh, solution or, or, or answer to some of these situations that we have. It's like we always are in a war that we have to completely be obsessed with or we're always, you know, dealing with the, the major crazy thing that's happening, you know, and every time the same, you know, little solutions come up, okay, now we got to look at gun control because of what, you know, um, happened with, with shooting. Um, but then, then we're just off, you know, to, to the next thing. So one of the questions I had about that was uh, when, when you're talking, uh, a lot of times I hear people reference the they, and yeah, I, I kind of get, you know, who that is, um, you know, uh, but how, how does it, uh, you know, manifest itself um, is it is it all, you know, basically, you know, from, you know, the educational system and the people coming straight out of the universities and that are now populating the press and that 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 uh, reporters are, much, you know, coming from a much different ilk than they really, you know, in the eye of stone days, you know, uh, it was a lot different and, and such like that. And how does this uh, narrative like you were uh, speaking at, at the very beginning of your talk, how does it get perpetuated? I, I, I know that might be kind of a silly question because, yeah, I, I kind of know the answer to that. But since you're so close to the actual inner workings of the field and you have actually, you know, uh, um, you know, talked. I, I mean, you're, you're on Tucker Carlson, like they say, and I know you get demonized for that. Um, I, I, I first time I, I really kind of listen to Tucker Carlson after, you know, the bow tie and the crossfire stuff was 
was when, when Jeremy did his interview with him a couple of years ago. So, and, and it was really quite eye-opening to, to hear, you know, what he was saying. And it, it, it's just, it's weird that we're not able to listen to people, you know, as individuals and, you know, in, and agree and disagree. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's, that, that was a great uh, point. Um, you know, sometimes I think the question of liberals is really a semantic one. We need shorthand for identical factions, and oftentimes these political factions can't even agree on what they should call themselves. So I know sometimes if I refer to sort of the establishment wing of the Democratic Party as liberals, like Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton, a lot of people on the right come and object and say, no, those aren't liberals, those are the left. And if you call people on the left liberals, they come and say, I don't want that label liberal. That's a you know terrible label. I'm not a liberal. I'm, I'm somebody on the left. And I generally just use the word to mean... You know, Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton probably call themselves progressives more these days because the word liberal has been successfully demonized by kind of the Rush Limbaugh right, you know, over the, the last couple of decades. Um, but I just by that mean, you know, sort of the standard average Democrat, neither say like a leftist, like following kind of this squad or, you know, sort of a Joe Manchin or Connor Lamb, like centrist, because they got down the middle Democrat. And when I make, uh, you know, statements about what they believe, like they've come to believe in censorship or have a much, you know, greater respect for the CIA or the FBI, I just use polling data about how Democrats largely think and see overwhelming majorities believing that. And that that's, you know, generally what I try and base my observations in. As far as like the you know, question of the journalistic class, you know, there definitely is a class transformation, you know, without romanticizing the past. I mean, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, journalism was a working class profession. You know, you didn't go to Yale because you wanted to be a journalist. You, you know, hated the people who went to Yale. You went to state schools at the most. You, you know, were unionized. You, you had to do your, um, activism in, in the workplace through guilds. Um, you fought with the corporations that, that own the newspapers and the family. And you were the kind of person who wanted to throw rocks at the elites and not be part of them. And I think the corporatization of the media um, has very much meant that now the way into journalism is by going to Yale and, and Harvard and, you know, the same small set of schools. I was always so fascinated that whenever newsrooms would endlessly talk about diversity, they meant racial diversity diversity, gender diversity, sexual orientation, diversity, but no class diversity. So, you know, instead of having, you know, 30 white guys from Harvard and Yale, um, now they have 10 white guys from Harvard and Yale, 10 white women from Harvard and Yale, 10 African-Americans from Harvard and Yale, and 10 Latinos from the same schools. And there's never any attempt to diversify from a class perspective. Part of it, I think, is because you know, in order to go live in these places where you have to live to be part of the national media in New York and Washington and Los Angeles and San Francisco and make a small amount of money, you know, you the only people who can do that are people whose parents can support them, who come from wealth. I think that's an exclusionary factor. But I think the biggest uh, change that has fostered this kind of homogeneity in the media more than any other by far is social media. Just the fact that Journalists now sit all day on largely on Twitter and are constantly getting positive and negative reinforcement from their peers about what everything they say and do. And 
you know, we're social animals. None of us like feeling ostracized or scorned. There's a, a, a big psychological incentive to avoid that. And the way you avoid that is through conformity. And I also think that as, you know, the kind of financial model of corporate journalism fails and you see layoffs all around you, you know, you know, if you say something on Twitter that makes a lot of people label you negative uh, terms like racist or transphobe or whatever, when your editor gets an order to lay off eight people, the next time you're going to be very easy as one of the people to pick because of that time when you got stigmatized that way. And when you go to apply for a job, it's going to be very easy to throw your resume away. So I think all of that has bred this kind of conformity um, in journalism that comes from class uh, homogeneity and that comes from this kind of culture that's breeding out any ability to dissent that I think is really harmful. Um, All right, let me take uh, one more call. Um, and that's going to be from Lance. If you were in the queue and I didn't get to you, I apologize. I always try and get to as many as I can. So hopefully you'll come back. Um, Lance, go ahead and unmute yourself. And, uh, hey, Glenn, great to talk to you. Uh, and I'll be brief because it's getting late. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, Okay. Okay, because you're kind of yep. breaking up. Um, you, you, you're. Uh, I, I don't try to be hyperbolic, but you are unsurpassed in terms of the work you've done in the 20th century. You know, uh, in terms of courage, in terms of the, the professionalism, and the story you've uncovered. So, thank you, thank you. Um, thank you. Very so, much. it's just, it's a fact, right? But okay, Bernie versus uh, versus uh, the Coke versus Tucker here. So, and Tucker himself, right? What Bernie was talking about is the job thing that the Koch brothers and Chamber of Commerce wanted slave labor and people with no rights. Now, he was on the front lines of the civil rights and all that. He said in that same one case that I saw was he wants there to be millions and tens of millions of jobs so that we can open our borders to every immigrant because we want them into our society. We need them for work and everything else. I don't think he meant that you know, insincerely. That's perfectly consistent with what he believes. That's entirely different in my view than Tucker, who really does say he doesn't like diversity, he doesn't want to be, you know, a, a less pure or a, a watered down culture. He wants American culture. It's very different than saying, I don't want these people in here, not so much for economic reasons, but because the, the, the culture will be, will be uh, will, won't be as strong. These people won't assimilate, et cetera, et cetera. To that, I would say, you know, and, and it really is a, a replacement theory thing. If we want more people, that's what the Democrats want, et cetera. I'm Italian second generation. My grandparents came over on the boat. And we were among the poorest of the poorest in Italy. We were southern the poorest areas of Italy. And they're called WAPs. We didn't have papers like most people in Europe did then. And it's not, you know, apocryphal to suggest that there was a lot of anarchists from Central Europe and from Italy because that was where a lot of radical socialism was happening. And there was Italians and people from other countries, more than Native Americans, who were blowing stuff up. The Pomerade sucked, but it was a response to a real thing. Okay. Two generations later, here we are. I would present that to Tucker. I would also love, in terms of this idea of assimilation into the culture, let's take all the college kids and all of the people of color that are second generation immigrants who became citizens. And I'll put a hundred American white people from any, co- any school you want, you know, randomly versus a hundred second, uh, you know, second language people of color from, uh, from abroad that have become citizens. Who do you think could do better on the, uh, you know, on the citizenship test? Obviously, the citizen would blow them away. 
So if I can make one more point as far as talking, and I think that it is a white supremacy. This stuff's in the ether, by the way. People don't just pick up on the most radical people like this killer did. And no, I'm not blaming Tucker. I'm a free speech, you know, uh, absolutist. But the stuff's in the ether. So if I was going to write my manifesto about my beliefs, I wouldn't start from the center left people when I first heard lefty criticize that. I would talk about Chris Hedges or, you know, uh, uh, you know, people that are on the far left. Those are the people that I'm going to say that really inspired me to act. So this other stuff was in the ether. I doubt this guy only ignored everything until he found these guys. So all that other stuff's in the ether, Tucker and all the other right-wing stuff, just like it is in the self-propagandizing on the left. You hear what you want to hear. So that was all there when this guy did that. Again, no, I'm not blaming Tucker directly at all. But again, my, so my final point would be, it reminds me of a couple things in a, in a very kind of vague way. Identity politics, absolutely. Hiring elites, you know, the rainbow flag on the Raytheon missiles and all that. Hey, I'm not, I'm, I'm pro color people of color, man. I'm hiring all kinds of people to be elite, you know, oligarchs or whatever, or, you know, power mongers or, you know, revolving door in the military industrial complex. Or like Jordan Peterson, who's, you know, I know he's kind of a joke. He talks about women being unequal because they don't, they're not as aggressive when they ask for pay and they don't. Well, it's because they're not appeasing the white male structure that is doing the hiring. So it doesn't mean they're going to be better for the job. It just means that they're more assertive, they're stronger, they're more demanding or whatever those those things are. Tucker, okay, not racist. He does not put things in racial terms. But what he wants is to preserve the Anglo-European culture. So, yeah, you could be from Nigeria or from, you know, anywhere in Africa or Mexico, any person of color. As long as you come over and do what America, as long as you assimilate rapidly to Anglo-European culture, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about Americans with the, with the, you know, vibrant, you know, with Native Americans and, and blacks. He's talking about American European culture. That's the culture we want to keep pure. So I think from a historical standpoint, like I mentioned about my own ancestors and what citizens that become citizens today would blow away the, the, the citizens that have been here since forever, the white folks in terms of understanding American government. And so I'll stop there and see, if, see what you think about anything I've said. And the only other thing I would say is that as far as this idea of Black nationalist violence? Absolutely. I don't have numbers in front of me. I would submit that if you look up the numbers, there's a lot more far-right violence done in the world than there is from lefty or black nationalists and all that. And there's got to be about at least a million, most a lot of times with impunity if it's cops and people in power, of aggression against people of color for every one where it's people of color against whites. Yeah, so just, and I, I do want to address that, and I appreciate all those arguments. Um, but just before, just really quickly, let me, let me just, just to get a sense of, of your, your interaction with, with Tucker's show, um, how, how often would you say, like, let's say per week or per month, do you sit down at eight o'clock at night and watch Tucker's show from eight in, until nine? Is that like where, where your basis for uh, your beliefs about his views come from, from firsthand? full show watching with some frequency? Hey, were you able to hear me there? So I don't know if the problem is for me or um, if if Lance, uh, I'm not able to hear him. Maybe if if someone could just in the comments indicate because I'm gonna otherwise speak. And if you can't hear me, I'm gonna 
have wasted my energy to speak without being able to be heard. Um, I was hoping to try and get an understanding from Lance about where his views about Tucker's worldview comes from, because oftentimes what I find is that people's view of that program, and not just Tucker's show, but other people that they comment on, come not from their own kind of experience of sitting down and watching it, but from what passes through their timeline, little snippets about what he's saying, articles about his show, as opposed to right sitting down and watching it. Oh, there you are. Right. Can you, what do you, what is your experience with that show? Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you. Now. Okay. I was mentioning media matter. Cause I used to watch Tucker. I used to watch Tucker and, uh, and Bill O'Reilly and all that stuff on a pretty regular basis. I don't have cable TV is one reason, but I used to always watch the various shows. I watched the left middle center. There's no left anymore. NPR, you know, all that. But I do look at media matters and I will say this absolutely two, two quick things. When I look at media matters, first of all, their headline is talking about how the left did this or the right did that. Tucker said, well, I agree with the people on Fox. Like a lot of the time, like, yes. And there's a lot of times it's critique of the Dems, but sometimes it's just, you know, just general stuff. So I think media matters is a joke. I, I, I call it personally, I call it Tucker watch and it's a joke. And I agree with him on many points here and there. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Tucker's the same. Yeah, so, okay, I think okay, he's so, a white. So, so, I do. I think he's a. So let me. But everything I said, I think he's consistent. That's fine. So, I mean, the reason I ask is because I know for myself that for people who know, who believe that they know what I think and what I believe and what I argue based on what they're shown by, say, Media Matters or other people whose jobs it is to take. No, no, no. I, no I'm just that you would have a radically different understanding. No, what I'm saying is of what I think. I'm not saying I'm, I just. Right. I disagree with Media Matters. I think they're a joke. No, I understand. I think, I think they're critiquing the no, right. I, I, I understand yeah, you hey, think they're a joke, they're but idiots. it seems like your views of what Tucker's show is, you've just described them as nonetheless based on the video clips they're showing you because you're not actually sitting down and watching the show for yourself. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I agree with a lot of these guys on Fox. No, no. I I used to watch it like all the time, almost every night, like many times a week. I just don't have cable anymore. What I'm saying is that Tucker seems to me like, I don't think he's really Jake. He's adding a lot of populist stuff. But what if you're you're not watching the show, what is your basis for forming opinions about what his beliefs are? Where does if you're not watching the show, where is your view? Where 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 are you? About three or four years ago, it's up till unless he's really changed in the last say five years. Now maybe he's radically changed his spot, but I've soaked up a lot of Tucker and a lot of Bill O'Reilly and a, not so much Fox and Friends because I'm not a morning guy and I don't go back and watch it. But a lot of you know the primetime guys, and I think that the ones on the left are worse in so many ways. You know, but, you know, so, I mean, no, I, no, this, no, is, I a, this it. is a comprehensive I, view, and I, I think I, I that's get it. unfair. I, I get it. I think, I think it's unfair. Wait a minute. I get it. I so let me, let me, let me, if I don't watch Fox, what you're saying, because if I don't watch Fox religiously, then I have no faith, but I don't think that's, that's, it's that's fine. fair. The reason I asked, I mean, I mean what I specifically the, said about the older European Okay, I got, the reason I asked is because I do think that most people in in our political discourse have undergone radical changes in the last five years, primarily due to the changes ushered in by Donald Trump. So if Bill O'Reilly hasn't been on Fox for many years now, I don't know exactly when, um, but he's been off the air for a long time. Tucker was the person who replaced him. 
I think if you go and watch Tucker in 2014 or 2013 or whenever the last time is that you regularly watch him, even 2016, like a lot of people, he has had radical changes as a result of the changes that Trump ushered in to the political discourse. Um, So that, I think, is happening so much. I find so often that every time somebody comes to me with very emphatic views about what Tucker's ideology is and what he thinks, almost every time I ask him, do you actually sit down and watch the show or are your views based on either what you remember about him from from CNN or what's appearing in your Twitter feed because Media Matters selects things for you and you watch it and believe that you're getting a fair representation? Almost in every case, the person will say, no, I don't actually watch the show. And I think, you know, again, just from my own firsthand experience, if all you knew about me is what Media Matters, who who spends hours watching me in my interviews and picks 90 seconds that they believe will make me look in the worst possible way and frames it in a way to distort my comments, you would have a, a perception of my views and my ideology that is radically different than what they in fact are. That's happened with this very show, this Colin show that people monitor. You know, I've been we've been going for you know, an hour and 52 minutes. If you were to take 45 seconds out of context um, of whatever was the most, you know, kind of shocking thing that I've said from a liberal perspective and showed people that and only that, that person would walk away saying Glenn Real is a racist, a fascist, whatever, um, because that's the purpose of, of those kind of shows. And I really hope people are guarded about the ability, even if you hate media matters and you know that they're scumbags, Nonetheless, if you're ingesting their material or other people on the Internet like them, you are going to have a warped understanding of, of, of somebody who you're not actually listening to in, in the full context of their show. So the only other thing that I'll say, because you raise a lot of, 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 of points that are that are very complicated about how we think of immigration and, and whether Bernie Sanders critique was just a financial and economic one versus a cultural one. You know, I. I'll just tell a quick story that, that I don't really have time to, to delve into all those points. But about six months ago, here in Brazil, there was a big controversy where um, a podcast host who's very famous and very popular, he's kind of like the Joe Rogan of, of Brazil, created a major scandal because he said that he believes the government should not have the power to legally outlaw any political parties. And when his guests asked him on his podcast, oh, so even the Nazi party, you think there should be able to be a Nazi party in Brazil? And he said, yes, I don't I think any political party should exist, which basically he was defending, you know, the way things are in the United States. There's a Nazi party in the United States. The government has no right to ban it. He wasn't advocating Nazism. He wasn't calling for the creation of a Nazi party you're trying to rally one he was just saying he believes the state shouldn't have the power to ban parties he was fired he lost everything overnight he was the full-on cancellation and when i rose to his defense by invoking views of free speech that i long believed in the reaction overwhelmingly was who are you to come to brazil and tell us how we should live. We don't want your version of free speech that is ruining the United States. You know, I've lived in Brazil for 17 years. Um, I've generated a lot of goodwill because of the reporting that I've done. But I noticed 
just the one time I was kind of off key from what the consensus opinion was. Instead of engaging my arguments, it was very much this kind of like tribalistic unity of like, we have a Brazilian way of doing things and we don't want your American way of coming and contaminating our society. And I was very surprised by that. But I realized that there's kind of a natural tribal sense of belonging that we have when we create societies and identify ourselves as belonging to a particular nation. When someone says, I'm Brazilian or I'm American or I'm Peruvian or I'm Korean, it means a lot more than this is the landmass where I reside. There's there's a meaning attached to it that people have you know come to value and, and that's important to them. And if you tell them millions of people who don't share your views of what societal values should govern or your religion or your language or your culture or your history are going to come in and radically change your society in very quick ways. A lot of non-racist, well-intentioned and benevolent people are going to find that upsetting. They're going to find that disturbing, which is why I strongly believe that there are definitively non-racist ways that you can say that you think unlimited immigration is disturbing, not just for the Bernie Sanders reason of it'll drive down wages for workers, but also because society needs some level of consistent cohesion and common language in order to function uh, well. But I think the point that you made that you kind of conceded, which is that if you look at the success stories of immigrants, Nigerian immigrants and Nigerian Americans and Indian Americans and Sri Lankan Americans who come and thrive and, and, and create businesses and um, end up essentially integrating into the ethos of the United States as they understand it, the fact that Tucker Carlson sees them as success stories is precisely the point, because what that means is he's not evaluating or judging people, including immigrants, based on their race. He's judging them based on their character and what they contribute to the society. And in that belief that I believe is his animating view and his genuine view, that is where he becomes not just different, but the violent enemy of people who go and purposely murder Muslims in a mosque or black people in a grocery store based on the great replacement theory that the primary way in which we evaluate people is not based on their character or contributions to their society, but based on their race, that everything, the organizing principle of society should be race. That, that is what those people believe. And that is what Tucker Carlson, and I would say most conservatives violently reject and so in order to, to try and conflate what has always been mainstream debates, not just in the United States, but every country in Eastern Europe and Western Europe, in Latin America, about how much immigration we should allow in, what kind of immigration we should allow in, what effect it will have on our society, to conflate that mainstream debate into this monstrous view that the world should be judged and individuals should be judged based on their race. You know, I find it just incredibly misguided and dishonest um, for exactly the reason that you said, which is that Tucker would be the first, not the last person to stand up and applaud 
a Nigerian American citizen who succeeds. And you cannot simultaneously recognize that and then try and compare him to somebody who just wrote a treatise and killed in its name the primary argument that there's no such thing as a non-white citizen. No, I found the discourse this week so dishonest and I found it dangerous for the reasons I started off talking. So this was a really good spirited discussion. I apologize if the this, this shoddy internet connection made it difficult to listen to at times. I don't know how bad it was. I, I imagine at some point it was uh, not good given uh, the reaction and the difficulty I had hearing sometimes. So usually it's pretty good. I apologize if, if that was annoying. Um, but I really enjoyed the discussion as always. Uh, I find the the interactive part the, the, the best part. The questions are always uniformly thought-provoking and good. I really appreciate everybody who listens. Very much appreciate those of you who waited in line and I, that I didn't get to. Um, and for those of you who asked the questions, thanks so much. You really are the ones who make the show. Um, and I will continue to for sure do this once a week. And I haven't yet picked the exact date and time that we're always going to do it. But it's going to be, you know, toward the beginning of the week, right around this time. So thanks to everybody who, who stayed and listened. Um, and I hope you have a great night.